Amen. Good morning. It is so good to be with you all. Thank you, worship team. I am so blessed uh, once in a while to be able to sit in the congregation and sing and be ministered to by you all. So thank you so much for leading us. That was awesome. Well, I invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 48. And as Pastor Colin prayed, uh, you're aware that Pastor Sean is not here right now. He's on sabbatical. And I am so grateful for Pastor Sean, for his influence in my life, for his leadership here. So I'm grateful he can have a time of rest and of gaining more of God's vision for ministry. So we're, we're happy that we'll be seeing him again in, in weeks to come. But today, um, we are sad he's not here. But I'm so glad that you all are here. So uh, we're in Exodus chapter 3, and I've really enjoyed this series so far. Last two weeks, we've heard from Pastor Mark and Pastor Colin learning about what's going on in the life of Israel at this time. The Israelites are oppressed. They're in Egypt. They're not in the promised land, but God is raising up a deliverer who will be delivering them from that oppression. And today, as we look at Exodus 3, we'll see the next step, the next chapter in God's unfolding plan for his people. So Exodus chapter 3, I'm actually going to uh, just get the tail end of chapter 2 for a little bit of context. I'm going to start in Exodus 2 verse 23 and read through right into chapter 3 verse 6. Here's Exodus 2 verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. He answered, do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for Hebron Baptist Church. I thank you for the people here. I personally am so blessed by the fellowship, by the friendships that we have. And we pray that this morning, God, that you, that same God who revealed yourself to Moses in that burning bush, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would allow us to encounter you, the God who sends us on mission, who gives purpose and compels us to go in this life. Lord, would you please show us this morning a glimpse of your holiness and a glimpse of your tender care. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I was a sophomore 
in high school. I was a band nerd. Everyone kind of has their thing. I was into band. And so marching band, that was one of the bands we had at school. Um, We were on a band trip. Each year, we would usually go on some kind of trip. This year, my sophomore year, we went to New Orleans. There was a marching band competition down there. I played snare drum, so it's like a big drum you wear. It's like a harness that holds it up here. It's super cool. So we were down there. We did this band competition. We were, it was kind of fun. We did all that. And after that, there was this parade, and I was having a blast. I wasn't even thinking about that I need to be drinking water to stay hydrated. I wasn't even on my mind. So we did the competition. We did the parade. After that, we went to our hotel. And sometime around there, it clicked in my brain, I am so thirsty. I don't know if I had had a drink that day or I don't know what I had, but I was so thirsty. So we got to the hotel. There was around 300 people in the marching band, students. That's a lot of people. So we all go into this hotel lobby, like 300 people. We have our sousaphones and bass drums and all this. And so the line for the elevators is like so long. And you can't even get many people in an elevator because of all these instruments. So I decided I'm going to go at the flight of stairs. I had my, my snare drum on and we, it wasn't like a two-story hotel. I think we were on like, it was in the teens, like whatever floor we were on, 13, 14, 15. So I walk up all these stairs with my snare drum on, finally get it to my room. I am so thirsty. I'm so very thirsty. I don't know why I didn't just drink water in the hotel room. Maybe there wasn't cups or something. But I remember I went to the Coke m- m- machine. I had my money. I put it in and it didn't even matter what drink it was going to be. I just need to drink something. And I clicked the button on orange slice. Have you ever heard of orange slice? I think it's kind of rare. It's just an orange soda. It's a lot like all the other orange sodas. It came down. I picked it up. I opened it. I've never had this experience before then or since then. I put the drink to my mouth. I felt the liquid go on my tongue, which is pretty normal. But then I could feel it continue to go down my throat. Like, I didn't even know we had nerves down here. I just felt it go down and down. I was so thirsty, and it just quenched me in such a way. And so from that moment on, I have declared that my favorite drink is Orange Slice. That's been almost 20 years ago, but it was a defining moment in my life. And, you know, you would think I would have greater memories from that trip than that. But that is the moment that really stands out to me. It was a defining moment in my life. Think about your own life. Do you have defining moments? I mean, moments that you can go back to and say, wow, that really caused a change in my life. When I think about most of the days of my life, I can't even remember what I did. It was like the same thing I did the day before. Like if someone says, hey, what'd you do yesterday? I'm like, um, I I had to work on it. But if someone said, what'd you do a week ago or a month ago or half a year ago or five years ago, I can't even remember. Is that sad? I don't know. Usually what I do is the same thing I do the day before. I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I eat dinner with my kids, watch some TV, I go to bed. I do the same thing over and over again. Most of my days are routine days, but there are a few A few defining moments in our life, like that experience I had when Orange Slice became my favorite drink. And of course, there's a lot more significant defining moments than what your favorite drink is. For example, you maybe had a moment when for the first time you saw someone with a hobby or a profession that has guided your career. You didn't even know that existed, but it ignited something in you that said, that's what I want to do. Or maybe there was a defining moment, the moment you first met your future spouse. I remember the moment I first saw Heather, and I've not been the same since that moment. It's true. That was a defining, a great defining moment in my life. Maybe there's more challenging defining moments. Maybe a moment of realization that your kids are growing up so fast, 
And if you don't make a change, they're going to be out of your house and you won't have established the relationship with them that you want to. I resonate with that. Maybe there's a moment when your eyes have been open to some great injustice in this world that people are not being cared for, abuse is going on, people are hungry around the world, and that arrests your attention in such a way that you are not the same person after that. You have to do something different. We have these defining moments in our life. And sometimes they're not the most pleasant moments, but I think in some ways they can be the most meaningful How can we cultivate defining moments in our life that really mean something? Because these moments are so pivotal. So much of our days is just doing the routine that's really set because of those defining moments. So much of our life, what we're going to be doing is going to be defined by those defining moments. And one day we'll be on our deathbed. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to look back at my life and say, well, I watched a bunch of TV and I ate pizza and I forget what else I did. I don't want to do that. I want to look back and say, man, it was hard, but I gave my life to God and God used it for eternal purposes that were so much bigger than I could ever have done on my own. And that goes back to what are the defining moments of our life. Today, we're going to look at Moses, this guy in the Bible who experiences a defining moment that absolutely changes the course of the rest of his life. He walks in a shepherd, but he leaves with a mission that guides the rest of his life and that God uses to bless a whole people. So my hope is that this morning that we'll be able to look at the life of Moses, and as we do, that we'll see two ways that we can cultivate the best kinds of defining moments in our own lives. Two ways that we can cultivate the best kind of defining moments in our own lives. The first way, the first way to cultivate the best kind of defining moments in our own lives is simply to encounter God's holiness. To encounter God's holiness. Let's look again at the first six verses of chapter 3. They say, meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So last week, we started to learn from Pastor Colin about this Moses guy. In a day when Israelite babies in Egypt were being killed, these, these baby boys thrown into the Nile, God had miraculously, providentially protected the life of this baby, Moses. And ironically, God had provided for him as a youth as he grew up in Pharaoh's own household. Later in Moses' life, he left Egypt. He went to Midian. That's where we meet him. As he's married, he has a son, and now he's He's a shepherd. But you'll notice he's not shepherding his own flock of animals. Here we're told he's shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, which may be an indicator that he hasn't come into a lot of wealth 
since he left Egypt. And this would have been a pretty radical life change, having grown up in Pharaoh's own household. Not only that, but the fact that he's willing to be a shepherd is eye-opening because the occupation of shepherd was repulsive in Egypt culture. So it's almost like we might think of someone growing up in New York City and then moving to Texas and becoming a farmer, a big life change. But Moses now is about to experience a bigger life change. The, the biggest life change, the biggest uh, defining moment of his life. He comes to this mountain called Horeb. It's the same area known as Mount Sinai elsewhere. And he sees something strange. He sees a bush that's burning but the bush is not burning up. It's not being consumed. If you've ever been uh, camping, you made a campfire, you know you have to keep putting logs on the fire or the fire just goes out. You gotta keep giving it something to consume, but that's not what's going on here. This is a unique fire. The bush is burning, but it's not burning up. So this fascinates Moses. Moses goes over to this and looks at this, and then he hears a voice, the voice of God. Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. God says, do not come closer. God says, take off the sandals on your feet because the place where Moses is, is holy ground because the God who is in his presence is holy. It may be that at the time of Moses, there was a custom where if you were entering the presence of someone greater than you, you take off your shoes. Maybe if you're entering their house or their tent, well here, Moses takes off his shoes because he's in the presence of of a holy God. We use that word holy in church. What does that even mean? Theologian Wayne Grudem gives this helpful definition. He says, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So God's holiness means that unlike all of us, God is totally pure, totally sinless, and he's separate from his creation. God is other than us. He is holy. And so when someone comes and encounters God's holiness, it's an eye-opening experience. It's a defining moment that changes the course of lives. It doesn't just happen to Moses. It's happened to other people too. We see a pattern in the Bible. You notice here Moses, when he sees God's holiness, when he encounters it, he's afraid. He's humbled. We see a similar experience in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet who would come later in biblical history. Isaiah has this really cool vision of God and his holiness. And in response to that holiness, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. When someone sees God's holiness, gets a glimpse of it, they see themselves. They see themselves in a new way. They see, wow, maybe I didn't think I was all that bad, but in comparison to God's holiness, I am broken. I am sinful. I am humbled. And for Isaiah, it was, it was a defining moment because later in that same passage, Isaiah says, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. So encountering God's holiness is a defining moment that leaves someone sent, changed. In the New Testament, we see a similar thing go on in the life of Peter. So Peter and others, they've been fishing all night long. They hadn't had success. But then Jesus comes along and he says, put your nets in. And they are catching so much fish that the nets are breaking. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us, when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me. Because I'm a sinful man, Lord. 
As, G- as Peter sees the holiness of God, God the Son, Jesus, he's humbled and he sees himself. He sees his brokenness and his sin and his need, but it doesn't end there. This becomes a defining moment for Peter because what goes on, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything and followed him. So how do we experience a defining moment, the best kind of defining moment that will lead our lives on mission for God, we encounter God's holiness. You may have heard of this singer, musical artist, Lacey Sturham. She used to be a lead singer in a band called Flyleaf, and she has a story where she experienced God's holiness. She recounts it like this. When I was 16 years old, I planned to commit suicide because life was just too heavy. It was just too heavy for me. I was an atheist who had been through a lot of hurt and had been hurt by a lot of people. I didn't want to keep going, doing life anymore. When you're an atheist, if life gets too hard, there's really no reason to keep going. On the day I planned to commit suicide, I remember my grandma looked at me going, something's wrong with you and you have to go to church. Lacey talks about how she didn't want to go to church. Um, It was against everything she really wanted to do, but just to appease her grandma, she goes to this church service. And as she's leaving, there's this man at the door, older man, who shares some gospel truths with her and prays for her. And in that moment, Lacey has an encounter with God's holiness. She describes it like this. I saw who I was. I saw that I was sinful. I saw that there was this perfect, holy, loving God, the God of the universe. Why does he care about me? I don't know. I just feel like God's showing me who I am. All the love I thought I had, it was selfish all the time. I just understood my sin. It was not loving. It was not selfless. It was selfish, all of it. God's showing me this picture of myself, and at the same time, he's wrapping his arms around me, going, I want to make you new. I want to make you new. I want to show you how to live, how to love. I want you to know I love you just the way you are, but I'm not going to leave you that way. I just remember waking up the next day, and I looked at my ceiling, and I was like, okay, um, I wasn't supposed to wake up today. My whole life has been an adventure since then. Encountering God's holiness gives us a fresh perspective and it defines, it becomes a defining moment that leads us to a life of purpose and following God, our creator. One more little little glimpse here of God's holiness comes a little bit later in chapter three. Skip down to verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. God reveals his personal name 
in the midst of this holiness encounter with Moses. Now, forgive me, this is gonna be slightly nerdy for just a second, but it's really cool. So just pay attention, this is super cool. This name, I am, what does this even mean? Here's a couple quotes. The first one comes from the ESV Study Bible. It says, God, the maker of heaven and earth, introduced himself to the people of Israel with a special personal name. The continents for which are YHWH. Scholars call this the tetragrammaton, a Greek term referring to the four Hebrew letters YHWH. The exact pronunciation of YHWH is uncertain. We usually pronounce it Yahweh because the Jewish people consider the personal name of God to be so holy that it should never be spoken aloud. Instead of reading the word YHWH, they would normally read the Hebrew word Adonai. So God reveals his special holy name here to Moses. Another scholar, Douglas K. Stout, he describes it like this. The name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists, and thus the Lord of both creation and history, all that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. And one other nerdy but really cool note, you'll notice many English translations of the Bible will often render that word with all caps L-O-R-D in our English translations, Lord. For example, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you look at verse 15 in Exodus 3, it says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, that word Lord might be all caps L-O-R-D, and that is a translation of this special name of God. So here's Moses, face to face with I am, the God who's holding all of the planets in place, the universes and the galaxy, and holding Moses' very existence, giving him every breath he's breathing, every heartbeat that he beats. It's all because of this holy God that Moses is encountering. And Moses, he's in awe. He doesn't want to look at God. I was recently at the Creation Museum and I, I got to experience the planetarium show there. Maybe you've, you've done it too. It's called the Creative Cosmos. And it is just mind-blowing to me. You sit, you know, you look at this cool screen up there and it's kind of just a journey through the solar system. And, and so you start by going through our solar system and it's like, wow, I can't even wrap my mind around our solar system. But then it goes out further and, and you see there's all these other solar systems in our galaxy. And then you think that has to be it. And then you keep going out further and you see there's all these galaxies in the universe and we don't even know the limits of what's out there. And the God that we serve is holding all that right now. The God that we can pray to about our deepest needs and concerns and who cares about every single one of them, he is holding all that right now. He is holy. He is I am. And later in the Bible, we'll see Jesus reveal himself as that very God when he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, so practically, let's take a moment we're on this, on this first point, looking at encountering God's holiness so that we will have defining moments in our life that lead to lives that matter. Practically, how can I encounter God's holiness? One way is to make a habit of meditating on God, to make a daily habit of a quiet time with God. This could be you just finding a space away from everybody else. It could be five minutes each day, reading some scripture. Maybe you go through a book of the Bible. Maybe you study the book of Exodus, what we're going through right now, and spend some time meditating on God 
and praying to God. And in those moments, it's helpful to take off our sandals, so to speak, to remind ourselves of the truths of how holy God is, that we are dependent upon him for everything, for every breath, for every heartbeat. He is the one sustaining us. Make a habit of meditating on God's holiness. Another thing to help with this is to study creation, to look at the world around us, look at the trees and the sky and the clouds and the animals and realize that's the God who's holding my life together. Focusing, meditating on God's holiness, it also has this refining effect in our life. When we catch a glimpse of how perfect and holy God is, we see ourselves in a a refreshed way and we see, wow, I am a sinner. I need God's grace. It's like when metal is purified by a fire to get the dross out and it's purified, God is purifying us as we come into contact with his glory. One other thing, when we meditate on God's holiness, one effect that I really appreciate is it causes us to rest. I don't know about you, but it's not uncommon that I feel overwhelmed with in the big picture, little things, but just the, the needs of each day, uh, relationships, projects, this and that. I just feel like, God, there's so much. I can't even handle all this. Can you please help me? I'm, I'm running late and this and that. But then when I remember, God, you hold time and space in your hands. You hold everything. You have provided for my greatest needs before I was born. Okay, I think it's going to be okay. You're going to take care of me and you can rest. And it's so nice. So meditate on God's holiness and experience his rest. Okay, so first, to encounter God's holiness, meditate on him, and that can cultivate the greatest kind of defining moments in our life. But second, it doesn't end there. To cultivate the best kinds of defining moments in our lives, not only encounter God's holiness, but encounter God's tender care. To cultivate the best kind of defining moments in our lives, encounter God's tender care. Let's look now at verses 7 through 12. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go." I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign that the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Notice this amazing reality that the same God who calls himself I am, who holds the universe in his hands, this same God has observed the misery of his people. He has known, he has heard, he has seen the oppressions and the suffering. He's seen how the people are overworked in Egypt. He's seen how their babies have been killed and he cares about them. He has a plan to deliver them out of that circumstance and into a good land. 
And this plan isn't just new with Moses. This plan has existed for generations now. As, as God has said here, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the forefathers of the Israelites living in Egypt. And who were those guys? Who was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We're told in Joshua 24 that Abraham's father worshiped other gods. And so in other words, Abraham didn't just kind of continue a religious practice passed down to him. No, God broke into history when he blessed and promised things to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was part of God's macro rescue plan that involves salvation for people of every tribe and every nation. So when Moses comes on the scene, God is continuing to add another piece to that rescue plan. And it's no less than saving one people, the Israelites, from bondage, but it's also part of a much bigger rescue plan that involves people of all nations. As God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And as the story continues, one day there will be a Messiah, a deliverer greater than Moses who will rise up from from this nation of Israel who will provide life for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, all who will trust in his name. So God now, he's revealed himself, he's revealed his holiness and his tender care to Moses. But not until now, he hasn't, God hasn't asked Moses to do anything. Moses is just encountering God. But now God says, I want you to do something. You need to go to Pharaoh. And can you imagine what that request would have felt like to Moses? Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's household, who felt the need to flee from there, who's brought up an occupation that's repulsive to the Egyptians, and who doesn't apparently have a lot of wealth to show for it. He's going to go into this metropolis of Egypt to the king, to Pharaoh. How bold, how silly it seems, and ask that the Israelites be freed. But God promises one helpful thing, extremely helpful. God says, I will be with you. It's interesting, God could have snapped his fingers and without any human aid have transported all the Israelites into the promised land. It would have been easy for God to do that. But why doesn't he? Often we see a pattern that God likes to use his people when he does things. I can't help but think forward to the great commission of, of Jesus. At the end of the, Matthew, of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus is saying, go. Yeah, Jesus, God could allow the gospel to be proclaimed from the clouds and every individual in the world hear it at once. But God likes to use his people to do his work. But just like with Moses, Jesus then says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God commissions us. He compels us to do things, but he is with us. He doesn't leave us. He uses us. And often he will use the gifts and the hobbies and the interests that he's given us to fulfill his mission. Check it out. With with Moses, God says, when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses is going to bring the people back to the place where he's standing right now. And this experience at the burning bush is in some ways parallel to what is yet to come. Here in this day, Moses has a flock of animals with him, and he's encountering God through fire in this burning bush at Mount Sinai. 
But in days to come, God will take this shepherd, Moses, and make him a shepherd of his people and lead this people to the same place where they will encounter God through fire on the mountain. God takes a shepherd, Moses, and makes him a shepherd of people. Are there ways that God may be calling you to use the skills, the interests, things that you have that you love to do, but to leverage it for his kingdom? A little story in my own life, an example of God's tender care in my life. Um, in college, my career goal at one time was to work for Disney. I wanted to be a Disney Imagineer. And so that was what I pursued. Those were the skills that I tried to gain. And I did some internships in that industry. and I enjoyed it. Um, after I graduated, I worked doing freelance work for a group in Cincinnati that does theme park design. I enjoyed what I was doing. But at the end of the day, I didn't feel like the work of my hands, the labor I was doing really had any eternal significance. So what do I do? I kind of went to God. And long story short, I learned of this group. I'd heard of them in the Northern Kentucky area that was building a themed attraction based on Noah's Ark. And I was so captivated by that. And I thought, man, if I could use this skill set, but it's for God's glory, it has an eternal significance, that would be so cool. And again, long story short, God opened that door and that's where I work full time. I work for Answers in Genesis. And I love being able to use this skill set that I enjoy, but for eternal purposes. God took Moses, a shepherd of people, and made a shepherd of animals and made him a shepherd of people. How is God leading you as you consider, as you consider his character, his tender care? How may God use you, the ways that he's equipped you and gifted you, to leverage what he's given you for his kingdom? One more section of scripture. We'll wrap up the chapter here as we continue to look at God's tender care. Let's read starting in chapter 3, verse 16. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters so you will plunder the Egyptians. We continue to see that God's tender care for his people, unbelievably tender care, has a plan. God has this plan of rescue that he's previewing right now to us and to Moses, events that will unfold, that we'll, that we'll learn about in future weeks here. Notice the word plunder is used here. You will plunder the Egyptians. That word triggers thoughts of war, and there will be a war, but not one that the, that the Israelites will have to lift a finger for. It'll be a war between Yahweh, the holy God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt. 
And this war will culminate on a night where God's judgment will pass not through his people, but over them because they have painted on their doors the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb, which of course looks forward to the greatest Passover lamb, our savior, Jesus. I think of God's tender care, even in the details that God has provided for the needs of his people through gold jewelry and clothing, things they would need, things for, as it says here, your sons and daughters, for members of the generation that eventually will make it in to the promised land. We see in this passage God's amazing holiness, but his tender care and the very plan that he will unfold to rescue his people. So as we think about our lives, cultivating defining moments that will give us life of purpose, reflect on, encounter God's tender care. When we see who God is, how tender and loving he is, it shapes us to want to be more like that, different than how we are naturally, but loving like he is. Ever since I married Heather, she has opened my eyes to the world of small creatures, of critters like mice and bugs and uh, rodents and things, things that I don't even think about. They're just not on my radar. If, like, if I'm driving somewhere and a squirrel crosses the road, sometimes I'll hit the accelerator just for fun, just go a little bit faster. <laughs> she does not do that. She screams, squirrel! We had to stop the car or slow it down. Um, she, and, and it's really beautiful in a way. She just cares so tenderly for the needs of all the creatures around us. Recently, we've had a few mice in our garage, so I got some traps set up. I caught a few. Heather didn't like that method, so she bought this mouse trap that will preserve the life of the mice. So she's been successful in catching a couple, I think, and uh, last night she had one that she caught still alive, and she drove um, to a local cemetery to set it free so it could live. She provided a little napkin for it to kind of hide in until it got used to its new climate. She provided a little snack for it. So it's just totally different than the way I'm used to thinking, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And the more I hang out with Heather, my eyes are open to what tender care looks like. I am shaped by Heather. Well, in such a greater way, the more we hang out with God, the more we encounter his tender care, it shapes us to be more and more like him. It gives us a new heart. In my own life, an example, um, growing up, I, I have a little brother named Chris. God bless Chris. He's two years younger than me, and I was not a very nice brother. We used to get in fights, and I don't know why. I mean, sinful nature, but boys do that, I guess. I have this memory on at least one occasion, holding him down the ground with my hands holding his arms down, my feet holding his legs down, and I'm butting him with my head. Like, it, why would I do that? I don't know. But part of my story, part of what God is doing in my life is he's working on me, I mean, has been for years, in that area of my life of aggression. And the more I see God's tender care, the more I'm shaped. And I'm like, wow, if you have loved me so much, God, if you've seen what a mess I am, and you have made plans to forgive me of my sin through Jesus, if you've continued to be so kind to me, despite all I've done, how can I not be kind to others? You've been so gracious to me. And so God's tender care has a defining effect in our life. So we thought about holiness. Now let's think about tender care. How can we practically encounter God's tender care in our daily lives? And the answer is very similar to how we answered that with God's holiness. The answer is 
meditate, hang out with God, make a practice of it each day for a little bit. And as we read the Bible, as we read through books of the Bible, as we pray to God, as we, as we study his character, notice over and over again how caring, how tender, caring God is and, and receive that first. Let your heart be open to that. It can be hard to open our heart because we may be broken. We may not be used to receiving that kind of love. But first, we have to receive that ourselves. And the good news, the message of the gospel is that God loved us despite our sin so that he sent his son, Jesus, to pay for our sin so that our sin, our brokenness, our sorrows can be removed, washed clean, and we can experience new life. Jesus rose from the dead victoriously. We can experience new life when we put our trust in him. Receive that. And don't just do it once and then never again, but every day be refreshed by the good news. Remind yourself, meditate on God's tender care. And sometimes it's easy to do that, but sometimes it's not. I think about the years that led up before Moses was called by God, the years that the Israelites, the generations were Egypt, when it looked like, are you gonna do anything, God? Do you even remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are we gonna be stuck in Egypt forever? But God was working out his plan even then. He was still tender caring even then. So in the moments in our lives where we do seek to meditate and encounter God's tender care, and it seems silent on his end, remember, He's still tender caring and he's still working. And in our local body, we can encourage each other in those hard times. In our life groups, we can come around and love each other. When it's hard for us to remember God's tender care is true, we can remind each other. So receive God's tender care, but then offer it to others. Be sent, be so compelled as we look at God's tender care that it becomes a defining moment that drives us to a life of eternal significance. Again, God, he likes to use people. He could just do things by himself, but he likes to use his people. So where is he calling us to step up like he was calling Moses to step up and be used? Men, are we leading our families toward Jesus? Parents, are we leading our kids toward Jesus? Is our faith out in the open so that they see it? They don't just hear it from our mouths, but they see it in our own lives. Are there ways that we can get on their level and share with them the tender careness of God? Maybe it's through family worship on a, on a daily basis or a few times a week where we just take a moment and we read a little scripture and we sing and we pray together. We show them that our life with Jesus is real. I think about the Israelites being oppressed in Egypt. And I think about our neighbors here in Northern Kentucky and who knows what's going on behind closed doors? Who knows the stories that we could learn of, people who have needs? So let's make an effort to make friendships with people who are far from God, who are being oppressed. We have VBS coming up soon. And we're going to have a bunch of kids in here. And who knows what kind of background some of them may come from, the brokenness they may experience. And is God calling us, like he called Moses, to step up and to love them? Is it a defining moment as we look at God's character that will drive us like God has loved us to love them? Of course, we have the gospel to every home, this effort to go out with each other in small groups or just to pray for this and to knock on people's doors and in love, just share the, the message of Jesus, asking if we can pray for people, give info about our church. And that's a scary thing to do. 
but I'm sure it was scary for Moses to be called to go to Pharaoh. And God promises his presence to be with us just like he promised his presence to be with Moses. So as we wrap up here, how do we cultivate the best kinds of defining moments in our lives? We encounter God's holiness and we encounter God's tender care. I opened with a a silly story about that time in New Orleans when I was so thirsty and I got that orange slice and it quenched my thirst like I'd never been quenched before. And I still like on occasion to order an orange slice. I don't even drink pot very often and I don't even see orange slice that often. But on occasion when I'm gonna drink orange or drink a pop and orange slice is available, I like to choose it and I drink it and I remember what that experience was so long back. Well, in such a greater way, in such a greater satisfying way, we have the opportunity to drink from Jesus, to drink from his good news, to experience life that is offered in no one else but Jesus. We have a love that's offered to us through his good news that we can find nowhere else and it quenches our thirst for purpose, for significance. May we always go there because there in our relationship with Jesus is where we will find the defining moments that drive us to the best life we could ever live. So encounter there God's holiness, encounter there God's tender care, and live a life that is for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who doesn't stand off, but you penetrate in the human history. We thank you for not letting Moses just keep on shepherding like he was that day, but you rocked his life with an encounter that displayed your holiness and your tender care. Lord, I ask that you would continually give us encounters as we look at you, as we look to you through your word, that you would be changing us to reflect you more and more, that we would have life-defining moments because of your impact in our souls. Lord, we thank you for being a God who is holy, and we thank you for being a God who is so tender-caring. Let us share who you are with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.